Okay. Um, Lord willing, if we, what we do not do this time, what we uh, do not finish in 1 Samuel, uh, Lord willing, next quarter is planned 2 Samuel. And since 2 Samuel is a little shorter, we would just pick up with where we were uh, in 1 Samuel. That is, I'm saying that because 1 Samuel is longer, as you know, and just we'll try to do our best to cover these passages as we can. We are still in the time period of the Judges, which was often a dark and distressing day. And yet, in that period of Judges, there are rays of hope, and there are rays of hope in this chapter, as we will see. One of the things I'd like you to try to do is to get an outline of the chapter, the section. Uh, we won't do that right now. Right now, let's begin by reading a little bit. And uh, then I'll ask you, how would you outline this section? But let's begin just in verse 1 and read through verse 20. The Bible says there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zothim, of the, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one of the wives, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, uh, his wife, and to all his sons and her, her sons and her daughters. And let me pause. Just don't be surprised if every time I encounter some of these words, I pronounce them differently, okay? Um, don't listen. Don't, don't put a lot of stock in my pronunciation thinking it's got to be right because I said it that way. In verse 5, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, was, she, great, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservants and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And may the Lord God, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Okay. Stop reading there for a moment. Do any of you have an outline that you feel confident enough and comfortable enough with that you want to share? What, what outline do you have of the text? Right. Um, barrenness, uh, dependence upon God, and then hope and delivery through Him. Okay. Those, those are key themes. Key themes, let's just say, barrenness, barrenness, and that may have two ends, but you get the idea. Uh, what else did you say? Um, uh, I think I said hope and God, or a request to God. Hope. Trust in God. Uh, let's, let's kind of broaden that just a little bit. Did you see in this idea that how many things in this chapter were connected with worship, with sacrifice, and with prayer? And this is constantly woven through this. So you have barrenness, you have trust in God and all these elements of worship to God. But what was your third one? I think you had three points. And then uh, deliverance through God. Okay, deliverance. The Lord, the Lord answers the prayer, so deliverance. Okay, very good. Very good. Um, here's, here's what I gave a did you have your hand up? Okay. Here's what I gave as kind of an outline, and I'm hoping that I can find a pen dark enough that everybody can see. But this is kind of one and two, is kind of an intro to the family. 
And then in verses 3 through 8, in verses 3 through 8, this is where you see something of the rivalry Rivalry between Hannah and Peninnah. And this is abbreviated there. Okay? And then Hannah's prayer in verses 19, 9 through 18, and 19 and 20, the prayer is answered. In 21 through 28, what we will see when we get that is Hannah keeps her vow. And then in 2, 1 through 10, she praises God. This is a hymn written praising God, exalting Him, and magnifying Him. Now, let me ask you a question. You just read verse 1. What tribe are you going to think that Elkanah is from? Okay, Christy, what did you say? Ephraim, you're going to think that. Is that right or wrong? Okay, you actually find out the tribe that he was in from 1 Chronicles 6 in a genealogy. In 1 Chronicles 6, in verses 27 and 28, you find out that Elkanah is a Levite. And then that's re-emphasized in about verses 33 through 35 or so. Why is that important to say? What's it important to say, Sharon? Yes, he's going to be serving in a temple. And, and you don't know how many times I have gotten that question over the years. How, how can he be serving in a temple? How can he be acting somewhat as a priest when he is from the tribe of Ephraim? And, and I will acknowledge, if it wasn't for First Chronicles, we, we could make that assumption. But you remember the Levites did not have, they did not have particular, um, a particular portion of land. They had cities, 48 cities, scattered throughout all of the land. And Elkanah rests here in this area of Ephraim. And the big rivalry between Hannah and Peninnah is going to be about children. Now, I think this shows us something of how significant children were considered in the ancient world and how parents longed for children. Recently, we were studying Judges 11. And when we studied Judges 11, we asked the question that if Jephthah sacrifices his daughter, why is she mourning? The fact that she will never marry and have children. I think that shows you how important that was regarded in that particular culture. And it seems that Hannah has her husband's heart. She has her husband's heart, but Penina or Penina has his children. 
And each of them appeal to what they do have in order to, uh, in order to strengthen their standing in the family. Two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, uh, it was not as common for the common man to have two wives. Does it show us that he was a man of some means? Could be. Uh, we don't know all of the details. But in verse 3, they would go up yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Ryan mentioned it's one of the themes, the theme of hoping and trusting in God and worshiping. This family goes up every year to one of the feasts to sacrifice, to worship. So they're going up to the Lord and we're introduced to a few characters who do not play a big part in 1 Samuel 1, or one of them does, but, but they will play a big part in the story later on. Eli, Eli will play a big part in 1 Samuel 1, but Hophni and Phinehas, the full significance of these characters will not strike us until we get to, uh, till we get to 1 Samuel chapter 2. But Elkanah would sacrifice and he would give portions of food to uh, his wives and to their families. Now, the very fact that he's offering a sacrifice and they're eating a portion of the sacrifice, what kind of sacrifice was that? Do you remember? From Leviticus? What was that? A, a, a fellowship or peace offering. Peace, peace offering, I think, is how it's translated in most versions. So, some um, carry that idea of fellowship offering. But it's mentioned in Leviticus 3. That was the only offering that the worshiper ate a portion of. So when you see people eating a portion of their sacrifice, it is... A peace offering. I don't know if you got to read anything outside this book, but there's a lot of about the book. There's a lot of controversy as to what verses four through six mean. That that man gets a double portion, and uh, the, the main point is that this is a very painful time for Hannah. This is a very painful time for Hannah. And Penina uses this to rub it in that she has children and Hannah has no children. Now, this isn't an accident of history, is it? Verse 5 and verse 6 say the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. This fact is grievous to her. And every year when they went to the house of the Lord, Peninnah would provoke her, Hannah would weep. And Elkanah says to her, Am I not better to you than ten sons? As a husband, let me just give you some personal advice. Don't ask that question. Uh, you're not going to probably get a good response. Uh, but um, he, let's look at these passages though. Let me ask you, 
What are some cases, Isaiah asked the question, who are some other barren women to whom God grants children in response to their prayers? Who are some other examples of that? Okay, did you point to somebody else? Rachel, Rachel, who else? Elizabeth, Elizabeth hadn't happened yet, but it will be with one of uh, verses three through five. But Rachel, she uh, says to her husband, "Give me children, or else I'm going to die." And uh, eventually, she does have children. Who else? Sarah. Sarah is the most, you know, the one that we think of generally first. Uh, Sarah, and who is between Sarah and Rachel? Rebecca. So Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. All the, all these women in the promise line had problem bearing children. And I think the point of that is God is showing these promises are going to be fulfilled by his power and his strength and not by human means. God is emphasizing that even in the, even in the um, birth of these children. So let's center on that theme of barrenness just a second that, that Ryan mentioned. Notice how often in the book, in this book, we encounter barrenness, we encounter rivalry, we encounter prayer for an offspring, and then we have God gives a child. Now, we've already listed some examples of barrenness. Sarah, Genesis 16 and verse 1, Genesis 11, verse 30, she was not able to have a child. Rebecca in 25 and verse 21, and then Rachel, Genesis 31 and 2. In those accounts, was there rivalry? Any rivalry involved in that? Who, who would be examples of that? Sarah and Hagar. first, and then uh, someone said. Rachel and Leah. Sarah and Hagar. Rachel and Leah. So there's a lot of rivalry in those particular accounts. And also, there were times that they turned to prayer to have children. In Genesis 25, verse 21, when Rebekah does not bear children, Isaac prays. He takes his problem to the Lord. He doesn't try to find a Hagar. He doesn't try to do it. He prays, and so does, for all her faults, Rachel in Genesis 30, verse 22, because the Bible says the Lord answered her prayer. So, barrenness, rivalry, prayer, and then God gives children. Uh, God gave Isaac, Genesis 21, and verse 1, and God gave Isaac, uh, God gave Jacob and Esau in 25, uh, 21 and 22. And it is emphasized constantly with the children of Rachel and Leah, as we mentioned in Ruth class recently, it's emphasized repeatedly God gives the children. So, so this brings back all kinds.
kinds of echoes of the book of Genesis. It brings all kinds of things flooding to our mind from, from there. But then we ask the question, why? What is that telling us? What is the message behind this? It reminds us of the patriarchs and it reminds us of God's promises to the patriarchs. And the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is alive and well because in this chapter he's going to bless Hannah with a child in response to prayer. It is the dark days of the judges, yes. But remember the key human, the key characters in the biblical story are not the human characters, but ultimately God. It is about what he is doing. And he's going to respond in a powerful way. Any, any comments right there on verses 3 through 8, Bob? Well, I, I think what we see is uh, God is taking control back and setting things up in the right direction that they need to go. It mentions here first uh, of uh, Eli's sons, and you know, they're really no good. They're, yeah. they're not taking the nation in the direction that it needs to go. And so God, through Hannah, is going to set things straight. Okay, exactly. And, and what is striking about that, Bob, you think about all the power, all the authority rests with people like, Eli is not, he seems like a weak man at points, but not a bad man as much as his sons. His sons are incredibly wicked. And, but God can work through one individual, and of all cases, it, it, of all situations, the most powerless of individuals, a barren woman, God can work through her to bring revival to a nation, to a people. And so that's really, it's really amazing when you put together all the elements of her story. But in the midst of her distress, in the midst of the accusations by arrival and the mockery and taunting by arrival, in the midst of a husband who, you know, just may not be able to understand the depth of her grief, she doesn't become bitter, she turns to God. She turns to prayer. And in verse 9, she went to Shiloh and she was seated by, uh, on the seat, uh, or excuse me, she is um, arising, going to Shiloh, and Eli is sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Do any of you find a mention of the temple interesting there? What's interesting about that, Sarah? Solomon's temple had not been built. Okay, we don't have a temple yet. It's usually called what? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. But look at 1 Samuel 3 3. It, it, it'll also be called there a temple. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. 
So the term temple is used in reference to what is clearly the tabernacle. Is that just an accident? Uh, Certainly the two terms can be used theologically in a large way uh, interchangeably. But but is there maybe more going on? One writer uh, suggested this. Do you know the word for seat in verse 9 is actually a word that is generally translated throne? It's generally translated throne on which king sat. And then you have the term temple, which we know where that will lead. As Sarah mentioned in 1 Kings 8, with building the temple of Solomon. One writer was saying, the trajectory of the book is headed toward a king who will sit on a throne and a temple. Now, remember, 1 Samuel in Hebrew would have been one book. It would have been one book. And so in that book, we're going to find the people asking for a king in 1 Samuel 8 and all that follows. And then we're going to find David's offer to build the temple in 2 Samuel 7, which will be delayed. The Lord says it's my prerogative to initiate that. The point is... That is the direction in which the book is moving. And so, in a sense, we're hit, we're, the opening chapter is hinting at key elements in that story. Now, uh, I think that's interesting uh, in itself. And some have suggested that the way Hannah prays for a child is going to be seen as a direct contrast to how the people ask for a king. The people say, give us a king that we may be like the nation. That's not the answer. That's a a wrong way to act. Here, Hannah is taking her problems to the Lord and pouring out her heart to the Lord. In verse 10, she was greatly distressed. She prayed. She wept bitterly. She makes a vow in verse 11. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor will never come on his head. Now, Obviously, Hannah knows that behind the conception and birth of children, God is in control. And that, and the text says that in verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. In verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. She is taking her problem exactly where she needs to. Because he's the only one who ultimately can solve it. And she prays, remember me, do not forget me. Give me a son. If you give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life. We talked about at various points, let's polyamorous. That often what we do comes back to us. It's usually the summary of that. Here, what she is asking God, she promises to do for God. If you give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of your life, all the days of his life. Now, 
when it says a razor will never get come on his head. First of all, what biblical other biblical character do we immediately think of in that regard? Samson. Samson. A razor will never come on his head. And that is part of being who? Of what? A Nazarite. A Nazarite. And, and so does this imply that just as no razor came on his head, that, that he also would not eat any grapes or drink any strong drink? Uh, if, if so, if, if she's vowing that, it's kind of ironic what she's accused of later. But, uh, and not go near a dead body. Is, is, is this show us that, that Samuel was a lifetime Nazarite? It may well be. May well be. We, we, we don't know all the details. But, but anyway, we're taken away from the prayer to what Eli is observing. And Eli, as the priest, is watching her. And she is speaking, but there's no sound. Her lips are moving, but there's no sound. And it may have been that it was customary... To pray out loud may have been just like the eunuch in Acts 8, though a thousand years later, was reading out loud. It may have been customary to pray out loud. And Eli observes this. And Eli asks her, how long are you going to be drunk? Now, I know that question really strikes us as harsh. And I'm not defending him. But what may that show you about general religious attitudes at these feasts? And what is Eli's own family like? But she doesn't get discouraged by this or distressed. She says, I'm not oppressed in spirit, and I have not drank I've not drunk wine or strong drink. I have poured out my soul to the Lord. And please don't consider me as a worthless woman. Now, why is that statement, the question was asked, so striking? In light of chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 12, the same words are used, except it's son instead of daughter. Who is described there as worthless men? The sons of Eli that we've been introduced to in verse 3, Hophni and Phinehas, they are worthless men. That title does not fit Hannah. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. I have spoken out of great concern and provocation. And Eli is quickly convinced. And he says, go in peace. And may the Lord give you or grant your petition, the New American Standard says, that you have asked of him. But the word grant is the same word give in verse 11. She asked the Lord to give her a son. 
she promised if the Lord does give her a son, that she would give him to the Lord. And here Eli is saying, may the Lord God of Israel give, same word as used in verse 11, give you the petition that you've asked of him. That is a statement that encourages her greatly. Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. Do all of your translations in verse 18 have find favor there? Anything that's different? The name Hannah has in it the Old Testament word for favor or grace. And so this is actually, uh, to some degree, a shortened form of Hannah's name. She let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So she went away and she is not sad. And then they arose early in the morning and worshiped. Verse 19. Again, notice how frequently that theme of worship, prayer, hope, trust, all those things tied together. They arose early in the morning in worship, verse 19, before the Lord. They returned again to the house in Ramah, and Elkanah had relations with his wife, and the Lord remembered her. She begged in verse 11, remember me. Do not forget your maidservant. And in verse 19, the Lord remembered her. The Lord did for her exactly what she, have asked, she asked. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son and named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Okay? We talked about how frequently this text will emphasize that the Lord is in control of giving children. Um, let's just write these verses up here. In 1, 5, and 6, the Lord had closed her womb. In 1, 7, in 1, 11, she asked that the Lord remember her, not forget her, and give her a son. Eli says, may the Lord grant you your petition in verse 17. In verse 19 and 20, the Lord gave her a child. The Lord blessed her with a child. The Lord remembered her. Um, and then in verses 21 through um, 28, you'll see the same emphasis, particularly in verse 27. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So, God is the one who gives children just as he did to Abraham and Sarah when they were past age. Just as he did after Rebecca was barren 20 years. And just as he did to Leah. Leah asked, give me, said, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob said, am I in the place of God? Only God can do that. Now, what thoughts do you have, Carrie? We, okay. Craig had, had fallen asleep on Mike, did he? You do this? You want to do anything on the window?
But um, go ahead. I find it very difficult that she asks for a son and says, I'll give it back to you. I would never make that promise. I, I did make a promise that I would do my very best to give my children back to God. Yeah. Um, and then to have a son and give him up to someone else in my house, give him up to someone else to raise, how could she be sure that he was going to be given to God? Under the tutelage of Eli with his two sons. Well, I understand. That's one of the reasons I said earlier that I think Eli is more of a weak person than a bad person. He is rebuked because he did not take strong action against his sons. But he did a good job with Samuel. I mean, it's clear. But what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, do not minimize, we do not need to minimize the magnitude of what Hannah is doing. I and mean, she is a real example of faith here. And, and I, think, I think most parents can identify how could we do that? How could we give up our son? How could we give up our son to someone who doesn't have all that great of a child? And yet, the Lord does use it. In a mighty, dramatic way, for the whole nation, he becomes an instrument. One of the key characters, really, in the whole Old Testament story, of of just putting. So, what you're saying is right, and yet it shows us, it makes us appreciate Hannah. I think all the more, Ryan. In a certain way, yes, a certain sense. So, is this a commentary that perhaps his first child with, um, with uh, Hananiah wasn't dedicated to the Lord, and she's going to, like, or maybe had fallen out of practice? Is this a, a commentary on Israel as a whole? They've fallen so far from the Lord that the firstborn aren't, aren't dedicated to the Lord I have not thought about that, so I'm, I'm, I'm just speaking on the spur of the moment. Okay. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily think we could infer that they hadn't had some kind of service of dedication like Exodus 13. And, um, but as far as the level of dedication and commitment, uh, there does seem to be a lot more required of those priests who serve at the tabernacle regularly than what was the responsibility of the average Levi. And so, I, I, maybe that's just what was, that's the best I can do with that right now. And so I need to, I might need to remind you with, with questions like that. Y'all don't need to make, you ask a lot of questions I cannot answer in making me look bad in front of everybody. I mean, just, you know, you don't Yes. And that was no longer happening. Yes. Uh, Joshua, it's Joshua 18.1 says they pitched the tent at Shiloh, and it stayed at Shiloh for almost 400 years. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, like, 
recently there, there, there are bids going on there now that fairly confidently found a platform where the tent was basically put in one position and left there um, for, for a good portion of the time in China. And so you maybe you didn't need as many guides. That, that is a very good answer. Because in Numbers 4 particularly highlights the Levite's responsibility in moving the tabernacle. Now, what will these Levites ultimately be assigned to? Eventually temple and temple worship. A lot of them as far as seers, musicians, gatekeepers, various points like that. Who does that? David. That is a long way away. It's a long way away. So that's a, that is a very good, good answer to that, to that question. Uh, it helps us maybe to see what was the average Levite like in the days of the judges. I just don't know if we could answer that real clearly. Sarah? Yes, yes. Absolutely. 221 will show us, of course, she did have three sons and two daughters more, but she doesn't know that at the time. She does not know that. And uh, your statement about the Levites in the book of Judges, Judges 17 and Judges 19, show us some stories about Levites that don't make them appear in great light. So you do know a little bit about Levi's. That's it. I was just going to say, I don't know that Eli does a good job of saying that. For one thing, 221, the lad grew up with the Lord. Uh Uh, Doesn't mention anything about Eli raising him. And then in 3-7, Samuel does not yet know the Lord. So maybe another failure that the Lord takes over. It could be. There could be some, and we'll see some of that unfold. At the same time, he will never be rebuked for what he did with Samuel like he is with what he did with his own sons. So I understand, I understand what you're saying. Um, and, um, but let's see if we can at least finish the chapter in verse 21. The man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vows. And you may say, what is his vow? Is his vow the same as hers? Or did he make a different vow? But he was, he was going to go up to sacrifice and pay his vows. Again, notice worship. And the priority worship is in 1 Samuel 1. But Hannah did not go up, verse 22. She said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. There's a reference later to this in 2 Maccabees 7 that mentions that they wean their children until they were three. 
So it may be that, that she has him that long. That's still awfully early to give him up. But, but she doesn't want to go to Shiloh till she leaves Samuel there and fulfills her vow. Now you look in verse, when you get to verse 23, it said, may the Lord confirm his word. I don't know if any of your versions reflect it, but, but there is some ancient translations had may the Lord confirm your word. Like, she, what he's asking for is that the Lord help Hannah to keep her promise. They're obviously both on board with this. They're both on board with keeping this promise, giving up their uh, son. In verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition which I have asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord and he worshipped the Lord there. Carrie was mentioning before how extremely difficult this would have been. Leaving this boy who has not been away from home, leaving him there with Eli at the house of the Lord. But she keeps her vow. She does what she has promised. And maybe the only way we ever receive our children back is to give them to the Lord. And I love the picture in Luke 7 when the widow of Nain's son is raised and says he gave her back, gave her back to his mother. In the resurrection, that will happen. And as it happened in his resurrection, and here uh, she gives him to the Lord. And when we, if we got into Luke, if we got into 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, we would have seen she is rejoicing in this. It does not seem to be to her, and I'm not trying to deny human emotion, but her overwhelming emotion is not sadness, but it is joy. God has kept his word, and she has kept hers too. Maybe too. That's a reminder to all what will bring us true joy, true meaning. What else do you have? What, Isaiah, I, I, there's some questions I didn't touch upon, I'm sure. But Four times in, those, in that last statement, she is talking about the Lord's provision. Uh, four times in that last statement, she's talking about the Lord's provision or the fact that she prayed for this child. And then one more time, she mentions again the Lord Yes, yes, that's true. Very good. I wanted to mention something about his name. 
Samuel, in verse 20, they named him Samuel because I asked him of the Lord. This is not, the name, it's not defining Samuel as saying ask of the Lord. But there's a word play between the Hebrew word for ask and the name of Samuel. There's a word play involved. That, that's the point. But you know there is a connection between the, the, the verb ask and somebody else's name in this book. Saul's name. And again, maybe this is foreshadowing the important part that Samuel will play in the life of Saul, the one who will be the first king of Israel. That could be the point of that word. This word ask, I think, appears seven times in uh, this particular chapter. Anything else? Lord willing, we will pick up on Wednesday night with First uh, Samuel, First Samuel two. See how far we can get there. Thank you, and God bless.